since coming into existence in the mid-2010s, the India stack has come to define financial technology excellence, an example of what a nation and its tech leaders can do to create a financial system ready for the realities of 21st century life. And here today, we have two of the men who helped make the India stack happen, Aryam Veer and Raul Sanghi, on Dave and Darm Demystify. From the studios of NMD Plus in the UK and US comes the Dave and Darm Demystify show. Dave and Darm Demystify Show, making sense of the world of fintech and digital finance. Sit back and listen as the two Ds take a subject and chat it through to make it clearer and easier to understand. And now, here are your hosts, Dave Wallace and Darm Mystery. Demystify. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Dave and Darm Demystify Show. And this week we're going to demystify the India stack, and who better to do that than Aryaman and Rahul, who wrote a really excellent paper. And some of you would have seen this because we reposted it on LinkedIn, and it gave a really insightful view to what was happening in India to facilitate digital identity and payments. But the whole stack concept is just phenomenal. And yeah, I'm really pleased to have you guys on the show, and perhaps maybe you could introduce yourselves. Sure. So I guess maybe I can go first. I'm currently the fintech lead for Visa in India, helping out mainly on the discovery and outreach side of things. So all the kinds of fintech startups Visa wants to work with. I'm the point of attack, I suppose. More importantly, I've spent the last three years in India at a couple of startups. One was named Coinex, which used to be India's largest cryptocurrency exchange. And the entire team pivoted to a new startup called Flowbiz that's trying to create a software solution for MSMEs in India who want to sort of manage their businesses from their smartphones. So I left on May of last year and Ariman and I started our little newsletter project called Tiger Feathers, which hopefully will expand into a burgeoning empire if all goes well. And that's where we've been writing for the last six to seven months. And I guess the proof is in the pudding, so to speak, in terms of you guys finding out about India Stack and what's been happening. So I guess we're here just trying to help these ideas Take up more of the shine in the global tech conversation and that's what we're here to help out with obviously the more people that can hear about what's happening in india and start to build on those lessons or even the tech itself that's obviously a credit to the founders and builders that are doing the hard work in india and obviously we're just trying to be the messengers so to speak Ariman. my name is Ariman. thank you dave and Tharam, for having us on i'm the founder of an early stage venture fund called prophetic ventures in india we do a lot of fintech investing and I'm also really into crypto and blockchain. And Rahul and I both volunteer with iSpirit, the think tank that's behind India Star. And we also co-founded Tiger Feathers, which is our burgeoning media empire. Not much of an empire yet, but hopefully it will be. And uh, <laughs> one of the first pieces we've written. I just love hearing when entrepreneurs have got like so many things going on and everyone wonders like, how do you fit all this stuff in? <laughs> Clearly you're a busy guy, right? Well, I mean, I would say that we're lucky. We're lucky to be able to do many things and have that space and time and not have, you know, more pressure, you know, that we can actually pursue things that we're interested in. 
And India Stack is, of course, one of the most interesting things that we've come across in our careers. So we are really happy to be here talking about it. Now, we spend like 12 hours every Saturday watching football also. If this is any like sort of hustle, porn type of thing, that's not the case. <laughs> I have to ask, which teams do you support? You know, so who disappoints you on a regular basis then? So I'm a Chelsea fan, been a Chelsea fan for more than 15 years, lived in London as well. And Ariman is a diehard Liverpool fan uh, uh, for like, <laughs> a few years. Oh dear, oh dear. So I guess getting into it, I mean, could you, would you be able to just sort of explain a bit about the India stack to begin with? For everybody else that maybe not have read the paper, but... Absolutely. Sure, I'll take this one. So the term India stack originated in 2014 or 15. And it refers to a suite of technologies that help India make the transition from low-tech economy to a higher-tech economy, where digital services are part of many sectors in the economy. So India Stack is usually characterized as having three layers, an identity layer, a payments layer, and a data layer, or to put it differently, a paperless layer, a cashless layer, and a sort of consent layer for sharing data. So to kind of unpack what this means a bit, we have to go back to 2009 which is the year that the Aadhaar ID system was first introduced. Back then, India had 400 million individuals who lacked any form of identification. That's obviously a huge impediment to financial inclusion and to you know, bringing these people into the formal economy in any sector. So that was one of the reasons why you know, very few Indians had bank accounts. 17% of Indian adults had a bank account in 2009. And that was the year that Aadhaar was launched in January of 2009. Aadhaar is a very simple sort of database which takes in a few parameters such as age, gender, date of birth, name, address, and I mean, date of birth, age is the same, I guess. Those are the only parameters it has, and it gives each individual who signs up a unique Aadhaar number. After taking in these details, along with the optional fields of mobile and email, and the biometrics, which is the face photograph, the iris scans, and the thumbprint scans of each individual. Once individuals have this Aadhaar number, they can authenticate themselves using a mobile OTP, a one-time password, or a biometric scan at like a kiosk, or there are other methods of authentication as well. But all these methods are digital, which means that they can be conducted in a low-cost fashion in remote parts of the country. So Aadhaar kind of kicked things off and it helped India go presenceless. People didn't need to physically, you know, carry their papers around everywhere or physically be somewhere to prove their identity. They could do so easily thanks to the digital ID. And one of the consequences of Aadhaar was that it made Know Your Customer or KYC checks for new-to-bank customers very cheap. Uh, the World Bank estimates that this brought the cost of KYC down from $23. So what we saw from 2009 until 2018 was a meteoric rise in the number of bank accounts opened for the Indian adult population. So that 17% figure that I spoke about in 2009 was closer to 80%. Wow. <laughs> So the data shows that other countries have made that leap in 40 or 50 years' time, but India did it in around seven years' time, and it was in large part thanks to this ID system. I mean, it's quite an incredible thing. Is India is the second most populous country in the world, isn't it? And you've managed to transform a country level. It's extraordinary, you know. I think when people work on digital transformation one bank here, it kind of takes longer to do it than the countries managed to do it. So what was the kind of approach? You know, did someone come up with the architecture? The project was, I think, spearheaded by this man known as Nandan Nilakani. He was one of the co-founders of Infosys, which is one of India's largest services outsourcing companies. I'm not sure what the market cap is today, but 
it should be in the top five or top 10 Indian firms by market cap. So he was a private sector entrepreneur who believed that technology can be a vehicle for effecting, you know, social and economic upliftment. So I think he was the first chairman of this project and he brought this private sector new to this public sector problem of giving everyone ID. And I think the marriage of public sector reach and scale and resources combined with private sector ingenuity and best practices was what resulted in the success of this project. They kind of bet the bank on commodity and open source hardware and software. And what I mean by that is one of the hardest problems from a technical perspective, I'm not sure if your audience would be interested, but I find it to be very fascinating. One of the hardest problems when you're building this sort of large scale database for more than a billion people is how do you deduplicate people's biometrics? Which is to say that if I sign up to this system, the system must first ensure that my thumbprints have not been entered into the system before. Because if they have been, then that means that you can have duplicate entries in the database. And running deduplication across billions of records in a database is very difficult to do. And at the time that they were designing this architecture for the system, they thought that it would require very specialized software and hardware that would take millions of dollars and huge, huge space in a data center to just sort of scale a database this large, which has to do these kinds of operations. And I believe they brought in some consultants and those consultants quoted figures that were in the, you know, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars, possibly even billions. I don't know exactly the final cost, but it was an astronomical figure. And after going back to the drawing board, because the number was very high, especially for a country like India, where the budget allocation is, I mean, in every country, it's precious. And this sort of new project, you know, eyebrows would go up if it was like a billion dollar plus. But they realized that actually this problem could be solved by just parallelizing the computing of these biometrics and sort of doing that on commodity hardware. So rather than specialized servers made by a particular vendor, they said that, hey, we can just get commodity machines because we bet on Moore's law. We bet that these machines will scale with time and that will just make this cost efficient in the long run. So I found that very interesting that they were able to swerve past a potentially limiting roadblock, both in a cost and like a scalability perspective by betting on Moore's law and the ability for commodity and open source software and hardware to keep scaling. Wow. I mean, it is the kind of model that Teradata used to come to market, you know, many, many years ago. So it is interesting that a government would take the risk with almost a startup style mentality. But so, I mean, this number of 80% is astronomical, right? But essentially it means that people have got an identity and an account. Rahul, what's the actual impact to the people then? You know, like having an account, what's it meant? The way we sort of phrased it in the piece as well, that's your invite to the dance. And having a bank account is your basic passport to participating in the wider financial system, whether that's to make a payment, to get credit, to get to access any of this range of financial services that you maybe take for granted in Western nations. It starts with one, having a digital identity and two, having a bank account. And obviously, if you wanted to draw a parallel to M-Pesa and other sort of innovations like that, it's almost like you bring an entire mass of your population into the formal financial system where they can be counted for and counted on and then unlocks their ability to participate in a wide range of other financial and digital services. So at the most basic level, it's just about getting a handle on your population and then starting to extract that demographic dividend, which India, as because of our 1.2, 1.3 billion population, it can go one of two ways, an asset or a liability. And to actually 
gain the most out of this incredible mass of people that's coming out, I think the first step is just to have them be counted and give them the ability to participate in the financial system. We spoke with Archie Hess. He works for a subsidiary of the Ghanaian Central Bank and Ghana targeted financial inclusion as a way of fast-tracking development for them as a country. I mean, it's incredible. Actually, we all have a massive interest in banking and fintech, but actually when you boil it down, that financial inclusion is the way to kind of really drive development and the way people kind of live and work and play and all the other things going forward. And, you know, I guess what was extraordinary about talking to him and what's extraordinary about talking to you is just the scale of which this is done at and the speed. We spent years, I helped redesign an internet banking service. It took five years to do that. And the speed we do things in the West, I think, is just very, very slow. One of the things I'm kind of interested in is you've got the infrastructure in place. What does that mean from a kind of fintech or sort of third party perspective. So is it easy to hook in and, you know, are lots of people coming up with ideas around it? This is sort of the concept that, again, we brought out in the paper of economic primitives, whereas the absolute most basic building blocks for a modern economy, especially in the digital age, which is to make available this set of public digital tools or this public digital infrastructure that can, one, give your entrepreneurs an easy way to get started. And obviously, for your citizens, you give you access to basic digital tools they would need to, uh, say, make a payment for a typical good or service they need on a day-to-day basis or access a loan or any of that stuff. So the principles behind all of this is to make it open and to make it accessible for anyone who's trying to build or use these services. And R, I'm sure, can add more to that. I think something that excites me is that all around the world, we have lots of examples of clever innovation. I mean, all of technology, but in fintech especially. And yes, financial inclusion is an important goal for many nations that don't have you know, high banking penetration. But what I find cool is that these nations aren't just trying to achieve banking penetration with the same standards or the same level that, let's say, other more developed nations are at. They're saying, hey, why can't we push the bar? Because a lot of the technology put in place in countries that have had it for a long time has been there for a long time, which means it's not new. It's not as up-to-date as it could be. I find it really cool that Countries all over the world are kind of charting their own path and everyone is learning from each other. And it's not just that all the, you know, the developing nations are able to upgrade faster or the developed nations have the best ideas. I feel like there's a real sort of confluence of ideas that we see now in the global community. And I'm excited for how India Stack and other projects like that will impact the way that other countries develop, not just developing ones like Australia and others that are looking to implement you know, open banking or open finance and such concepts. It's a very, very good point. I mean, actually, Archie from Ghana, he did mention that he'd spoken to the Indian government, looked at the India stack. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a cool organization called the Digital Public Goods Alliance, which is a very unlikely alliance, but a very cool alliance, which is spearheaded by Norway and India. And I'm not sure how much those two countries have in common, but this is something which they started together and they're trying to evangelize the concept of building digital public goods as a way of, you know, improving an economy. And, you know, Norway and India opposite ends of the development spectrum, but just shows that, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, we're all kind of on the same team here and one can always improve. It doesn't matter if you're already like a rich country with a high GDP per capita or development index, you can still make things better. And ideas don't only come from, you know, one place or the other, they can come from anywhere. 
To add to that, I don't know if you guys remember or are familiar with the concept of DEPA that's currently been rolled out in India, which is the Data Empowerment and Protection Architecture. That's essentially our new framework for data governance in India. Similar, I guess, in spirituality to open banking in the UK or PSD2 in the US, in the EU. But just last week, the Australian Treasury actually published its recommendation on how data governance should be conducted in Australia. And they managed to actually, I guess, highlight a lot of the similar ways India is trying to do this via the use of a decentralized structure. So not a central consent collection authority, but a set of regulated intermediaries that play the role of consent managers. So it's not just that India is sort of providing a template just for developing nations at a similar economic trajectory to us. But obviously, like we said earlier, that the lessons are instructive for any country that wants to embark on similar paths with regards to building, say, interoperable payment systems or managing their data in a more holistic, customer-centric manner. I'd like to just come in here to say that, you know, while Rahul and I and you know many of us who kind of work on this are very proud of what India is doing, it's not like we believe that we have all the best ideas. Everything is perfect here and without problems. You asked a question, Dave, which we've so far evaded giving an answer to, but how does one actually use these ID things? And is it easy for fintechs and third parties to use something like Aadhaar? The answer to that is yes and no. Some services are easily accessible. For example, if like a user says that my name is Aryaman, my date of birth is this, my address is this, it's very easy for a business to use the Aadhaar system to authenticate that data. But for doing things which make it easier for KYC, there's actually a lot of restrictions in place preventing certain types of financial institutions from using it. The Supreme Court basically has also weighed in on the issue. And once Aadhaar was made available to everyone, businesses could query the Aadhaar database to actually confirm the identity of their users. This was really powerful. And lots of businesses started doing this. But the problem was that those businesses were storing the Aadhaar number of the user, as well as all the data that they got back from the Aadhaar database from the user. So the user's data was just proliferating in many places and businesses were asking for this data even if they didn't need it. They were asking for your Aadhaar number and they were asking you to do these data pulls. And all of that data was just being stored on multiple databases where perhaps it was not needed. And some of these systems were not that secure. So you began to have data leaks and it kind of came to the point where like, you know, millions of people's records were being leaked because there was one insecure, let's say, private sector or public sector player whose database was not secure. And that was what leaked. And as a result, there's a public uproar and the Supreme Court said, okay, listen, we're putting the clamps down and only certain regulated entities like banks can use this. So there are some features of Aadhaar which cannot be used widely, others which can. Overall, the system has a lot of potential, but I feel like the training wheels are still on. Sounds like you're sort of in permanent beta or agile thing at scale. You know, I guess banks then, their function moves to not just being places for moving money around, but also places where your identity is sort of secure, which I think is interesting as well. Yeah. Banks, they have an advantage now wherein they have like a very cheap and easy way of doing KYC. Actually, KYC is cheap for everyone. Like there's many nuances here because over and above the Aadhaar-based eKYC, there are other ways that you can actually ascertain the veracity of a user's identity in a way that satisfies the regulator. And those other means are still open to some players. But for example, banks have a leg up because they can use the Aadhaar system for verifying your identity, but non-bank lenders cannot do that. I wouldn't say that your identity is kind of secured by the bank. It's just the bank has a sort of 
cheaper way to do your KYC than some right. bank competitor, right. which is maybe not the ideal scenario. Just to add to that, if you're trying to implement any large-scale technological change in India, you have to balance the regulatory aspect of that. So especially with India stack, with each of the layers, whether that's identity payments or data, or in fact, the new sort of open credit enablement network, there's always going to be regulatory implications of that. And I think that's a sort of delicate dance that will determine the extent to which these tools can be used in a variety of ways. But at least you made that progress. Globally, there are banks that use regulation as a reason for not doing any change at all, right? So, I mean, this is an important lesson that even regulations need to be adapted to the new economy, right? And it's really great to hear all of this stuff from a country that I think has actually been seen as a powerhouse for technology, but to use it in-house on this kind of scale is just absolutely phenomenal. I mean, it's fascinating because, again, you know, if you look at sub-Saharan Africa, you look at India, you've got a young population for innovation and openness on top of that. And you can see how the world is going to change dramatically in the next sort of 20 to 30 years as the West, we've got older populations and we're sort of stuck with our legacy. So it's a really, really interesting thing. We've run out of time, I'm afraid. I mean, we could literally go on for days, but I just wanted to thank you very much for joining us. And it'd be great to sort of follow this up with a further conversations if you'd be interested in doing so. Firstly, thank, thank you, you so, so much for sharing the piece and for inviting us on. Apologies if we've run through some stuff, but I'm like you mentioned, we can dive deep into each one of these things and spend a podcast on them. No apologies necessary. I think it's just an incredibly fascinating topic and one that, you know, I think will become more and more important to us all going forward. Brilliant. Thank you so much. The website is Tiger Feathers, right? Yeah, tigerfeathers.substack.com for now. Yeah. Brilliant. Definitely have a read through the papers. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to Dave and Dan Demystify. We hope you join us next time and check back in the weeks ahead as we build our podcast vault on SoundCloud. Be sure to connect with Dave Wallace and Darmish Mystery on LinkedIn. And until next time, ciao and have a marvelous week. The Dave and Darm Demystify Show is a production of NMD Plus, London, Chicago and Austin, Texas.